There are handouts on the back as usual. While people are coming in, I'll just call your attention to uh, uh, some of the resources on the back. I, I tried to pull together resources again. We're getting into more familiar time. Well, you know, areas of the history where people are a little more familiar and there's a little more material that's out there. Um, last week I recommended a, a, a documentary on the life of Luther. Um, there, isn't, there kind of isn't a documentary on the life of Calvin. Uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, biographically speaking, he's, cut, he's a lot more boring than, than Martin Luther is. Um, he, he, he sat in one place and wrote a lot of books, um, so it's kind of hard to do a documentary on him. But um, there are a couple of good biographies on here, um, including one short one that you can link off of Desiring God's website. It's 120 pages, short biography of John Calvin. Um, so... Uh, go ahead and feel free to avail yourself of that. I do have one uh, video resource on here. I scanned over most of it, so I feel mostly com- I feel mostly comfortable recommending it. It's a it's a documentary on the Reformation, so it's on the whole Reformation, not just any one of the people. It's called Light Unshackled. You can find it on YouTube. There's a link there on the on on the back of your on the back of your handout. So uh, and it seems to be reasonably good. Um, you know, the parts of it that I scanned over this week. I didn't watch the whole thing in detail, so, uh, but it does seem to be good and, and from a, a Protestant perspective. So, um, and, you know, a, a conservative Protestant religious perspective as opposed to being a secular documentary or a documentary that's primarily from a Catholic perspective. So, anyway, so I commend those resources to you uh, and, uh, you know, for your own edification and, and, uh, uh, and growth. So today we're going to continue our study. Can you go to the first slide, Chris? Um, uh, today we're going to continue our study of the Reformation. We're going to be shifting, though, from Germany, where we spent last week, over to Switzerland. We're going to be talking entirely about the Swiss Reformation uh, and specifically about two men, uh, in particular, uh, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. These are so, uh, and so we're going to talk about those two guys primarily. Uh, one man does not a Reformation make. If the Protestant Reformation had been a product only of Luther's brilliance and stubbornness, it would have been nothing more than a standoff between a pugnacious monk and a corrupt pope, only remembered as a curious footnote in history. Think John Huss, think uh, Wycliffe when we talked about them. They're, they're not the guys you think of when you think of the Reformation. They were significant. They were, they were uh, you know, a lot of the ideas in the Reformation were actually piloted by those guys, but... They're not the guys that you think of because all the all of the things that didn't you know didn't come together. It was, there were one guy here, one guy there that never got connected and never became a movement. So in Luther, you have all of this stuff, including his brilliance and his stubbornness, coming together and and birthing a movement. So the Reformation was uh, a clear movement of the hand of God in history, bringing different Christian leaders in different regions almost simultaneously to similar conclusions. Among them are these ideas. God is sovereign in history and in salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not as a result of good works or superstitious ritual. Uh, and the Bible is the supreme and final authority in matters of faith and life. Uh, Luther's insights were either shared or followed by many others across Europe. Uh, in different localities, however, the Reformation took on different emphases. Uh, the church leaders had to grapple with the full implications of the recovered gospel. So what did this mean for the practice of Christian worship? 
Uh, what did it mean for the relationship between the church and the world? Uh, or for that matter, what did it mean for the relationship between different churches? Uh, so today we are going to focus primarily on these two men, Zwingli and Calvin. Uh, but we should not forget that the Reformation was most significant as a movement in the hearts and minds of countless people across Europe as they were inspired and guided by the Bible, especially the, as the Bible as it was becoming available in the people's own languages and spreading rapidly because uh, of available copies due to the, to the uh, invention of the printing press. Between 1520 and 1530, the Bible was translated into German, French, and English and given into the hands of eager people desperate to learn the will of God through the word of God. Uh, next slide, Chris. Start our time uh, just thinking about the, the context in which this portion of the Reformation happened in uh, the, the country of Switzerland. So at the same time that Luther was looking and locking horns with the Roman Catholic Church, there was a similar struggle was going on in a small, newly constituted country halfway between Wittenberg and Rome. When we think of Switzerland today, we tend to think of watches, fine chocolate, uh, political neutrality. Uh, Switzerland's national roots, however, were deeply intertwined with the roots of the Re uh, This new nation's relative political autonomy and uh, created a very fertile environment for the Re to grow in significant ways. Uh, all of the theological and moral problems that the church was struggling with in the early 1500s were just as rampant and just as significant in Switzerland. Um, so we're not going to go over all the details of indulgences and all the superstitions that we've talked about, uh, but just keep that in the back of your mind, that that is definitely present and going on here. Uh, there was one major difference, though. Uh, in addition to the theological and, and uh, moral difficulties faced by Christians at the time, the Swiss were also having political and, and, and military trouble. Um, I'm going to assume that you don't know much about Swiss politics. Uh, the nation of Switzerland is divided into cantons. These are similar to our states, except they were much more independent and much more uh, powerful individually. Um, uh, they worked together to form what was called the Swiss Convention. One of the unique features of life in Switzerland at the time is that for the most part the feudal system had been thrown off and so therefore individuals were not under the direct power of overlords. So you had people kind of deciding for themselves what they were going to do. And that's going to be very significant uh, in, the, in the progress of the Reformation uh, as we're going to see it in, uh, in um, uh, Zurich, in Geneva. Next slide. At the end of the 1200s and the beginning of the 1300s, the Swiss had developed a new form of warfare using pikes and halberds so those are these very long spears uh, with blades at the top uh, that was essentially unbeatable until gunpowder becomes common use. Um, this means that everyone wants the Swiss on their side in a war, but then conquer the Swiss and make them fight for them. So the King of France and the Holy Roman Empire and others around Europe Swiss money to have them fight for them. So the Swiss people essentially become mercenaries. Uh, there were a number of problems that grow out of this as a direct result of the practice. Um, there was a whole new set of moral problems that arise from living in a mercenary culture. When you live in a nation where people kill for money, the moral bar is going to be pretty low. Uh, second, because the Swiss cantons were largely independent of each other, each canton got to decide who they were going to hire their services out to. So if the king of France hires mercenaries from one canton and the Holy Roman Empire could hire mercenaries from another, 
So most of the wars in the 13 and 1400s, no matter which nations were fighting against each other, it was most likely that the Swiss were fighting against the Swiss uh, when, it, when it actually came down to the battlefield. So the Swiss, as a nation, were not, ner- were not terribly pleased with the situation, though they certainly liked the pay and the respect that came from their military prowess. But for all that, they were kind of caught in a trap. Uh, how could they build a society, a, a good and just society, that was worth living in under these kind of circumstances? Uh, next slide. So into that kind of context, enter Ulrich Zwingli and the Swiss Reformation. Because of the concerns and questions the Swiss nation was asking, the Swiss Reformation is going to have a different flavor than the German one. Uh, in the Swiss Reformation, corporate concerns, the concerns of the body of the people, are there from the very beginning. Luther reforms as an individual. Here I stand, right? And only later does he go back and develop a civil and ecclesiastical theology. Uh, Zwingli and the Swiss, however, they begin with we believe and how is it that we need to be constituted. So that that I, we is a very significant significant difference. Uh, Questions on, on Swiss and the kind of the context in which the Swiss Reformation develops? Not my fault. I didn't do it. Okay, well, if, there, if some come up later, you can ask. Okay, so the Reformation in Zurich. So this is Ulrich Zwingli. He, he lived from 1884 to 1531. Um, he was, so he was a contemporary of Luther's generation. Uh, he, was born, uh, he lived roughly the same time period. Uh, and he was, he was ordained to the priesthood in 1506. Uh, and soon thereafter, through study of Scripture, concluded that the church was deeply corrupt and that church doctrine was incorrect in many areas. Uh, Zwingli was strongly influenced by Wycliffe and Hus, as well as Erasmus, but he was coming to his conclusions independently from Luther and the German Reformation. Having realized that the Bible was the supreme authority, Zwingli, appropriately enough, sought to apply that to his life and the life of the church. True Reformation, after all, springs not from one man's opinions or even from one social group's frustrations, but from the Word of God. Next slide. Uh, Zwingli ministered in the, in, the, in the city of Zurich. We can date this, and you can see that's kind of in that upper northern part of the country. We can date the beginnings of the Reformation in Zurich to New Year's Day, 1519, when Zwingli, who was already a very popular preacher among the people at the time, started a series of expositional sermons beginning in the first chapter of Matthew. This is not going to seem strange to us, but it was revolutionary for the time. He even preached through the genealogies as he began to work through the New Testament chapter by chapter by chapter. This new focus on the Bible and Bible doctrine soon brought the tensions to a crisis, though. As Zwingli Zwingli realized, he could no longer stay in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. The next year, he renounced his salary from Rome, and in October 1522, he resigned his office as priest. Next slide. Uh, The Zurich City Council immediately hired him to be the city's official preacher, reflecting Zwingli's widespread popularity and support. And we see here an example of congregationalism and the effect of the, the, the culture at the time in, in uh, Switzerland at the time, which is this very much individual, people are not necessarily under the power of others and taking orders from others. People are deciding on their own what they want, and so therefore Zer, uh, Zwingli is very popular, and that popularity results in 
and uh, the people saying, we want this guy to be ministering the gospel to us. Um, so Zwingli himself acknowledged his support from the people, observing, quote, the common man adheres to the gospel, although his superiors want nothing to do with it. Zwingli and Zurich's final break with Rome came a few months later in 1523, when, when Zwingli sought to defend himself against criticisms of the Catholic hierarchy by calling a special town council meeting. Uh, next slide. Here he, well, you're going to hear some similarities to Luther, right? Here he presented his 67 articles, theological points that he had composed to summarize his differences with Rome. Zwingli declared those 600 Christians who gathered in that meeting to be a legitimate church council and challenged the small delegation led by the the local Catholic bishop to refute any of his points. Here again, we have an illustration of congregationalism. On the one side, we have the Catholic authorities who are aghast that Zwingli would believe that this gathering of ordinary Christians under the authority of the Bible alone could be equal to an official church council led by the Pope, cardinals, and bishops. But Zwingli and the people of Zurich uh, 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 who had been, by now had been sitting under biblical... I will get my words right here. They had been, see- been sitting under good biblical teaching for four years by this point, right? And so they all said, no, this is what Zwingli is teaching is right. And they rejected everything that the, the Catholic uh, leaders were putting forward. This became known as the first Zurich Disputation and marked a key moment in the Reformation as it vindicated Zwingli against the charge of heresy and produced the first Reformed Confession of Faith. So what were the things that, that Zwingli taught? What were the doctrines that he was uh, so convinced of? Uh, Zwingli affirmed the, the core doctrines of the Reformation. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. So you're starting to see those five solas being articulated within the context of the Reformation. From here, Zwingli focused on, in particular on the fundamental distinction, even the great divide separating the creator from his creation, separating God from man. So Zwingli, in Zwingli's thinking, he thought idolatry to be the most fundamental and most heinous sin committed by humanity. Uh, for what is idolatry but ascribing to creatures those things that are due to the creator? At the core of Rome's errors in his thinking corruptions and excesses, Zwingli sniffed the stench of idolatry. Appalled at the rampant superstition of his day, Zwingli sought to expunge all relics, icons, and other manner of idols from his churches and the lives of his people and to turn their worship to God in heaven alone. Uh, Zwingli did more than preach against these things. Um, He purged them from the churches. Uh, One distraught Catholic even wrote to the emperor in 1530, and described the conditions of Zurich's churches after Zwingli's reforms. Quote, The altars are destroyed and overthrown. The images of the saints and the paintings are burned or broken up and defaced. They no no longer have churches, but stables. Zwingli wanted Christian worship to focus on the transcendent living God in heaven, not human creations or pale images. Next slide. Uh, Much as Luther and Zwingli agreed of the gospel and the need to reform the church, they had some important differences. And this is important because, remember, these guys were contemporaries with each other and they did interact. Um, so the, uh, they, they agreed on the essentials of the gospel and the need to reform the church, uh, but here are some of the differences that they had. 
perhaps most prominent was their dispute over the nature of the Lord's Supper. Um, Luther had opposed the Catholic Mass because he saw it as a work. It was something that we are required to do in order to gain favor with God. But Luther still affirmed Christ's physical presence in the Lord's Supper itself. So the Lord's Supper for Luther was still the actual body and blood of Christ. Not quite the same way that the Catholics would see it, but still significantly in that direction. Uh, Zwingli opposed the Catholic Mass because he saw it as idolatrous, as a superstitious reverence for something in the place of Christ. Thus, Zwingli differed with Luther and saw that the Lord's Supper was only a symbol or a memorial to Christ. Uh, This disagreement provoked a a bitter dispute between the two, with Zwingli wishing Luther would keep quiet, so, quote, we should not have been forced to swallow your loathsome stuff. Uh, and, Luther, and Luther, on the other hand, denouncing Zwingli as, quote, seven times more dangerous than when he was a papist. Uh, they met in 1529 for a famous debate that failed to resolve their differences, and unfortunately they parted in, in enmity, uh, an enmity that remained until their deaths. Uh, Zwingli also differed from Luther over what, would, what could take place in Christian worship. Uh, Zwingli rejected uh, what the Bible did not prescribe, Uh, This has become known over time as the regulative principle. If you've ever heard that term, that's still something that floats around in certain circles today. Uh, And it holds that church gatherings should only include those practices mandated by Scripture. Prayer, Scripture reading, confessions of faith, singing of of hymns and songs, the preaching of the Word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. One practical illustration of this difference came over organs. Luther loved them and found them a powerful addition to church music. Whereas Zwingli, though an accomplished musician himself, removed the organ from his church because it wasn't something that he he viewed as being allowed by Scripture. Uh, Finally, Luther and Zwingli held somewhat different positions on the nature of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. This arose again from their different fundamental concerns. Uh, As one scholar puts it, Luther's Reformation was born out of his torturous quest to answer the question, how can I be saved? Zwingli was more concerned with the social and political implications of reform. So Zwingli's central question was, how can my people be saved? And out of that, as such, Zwingli believed in a much closer relationship between church and state, uh, where both church and the civic community were almost united as one body, and the kingdom of God brought nearer to earth as a result. In his words, quote, "...the Christian man is nothing else but a faithful and good citizen." and the Christian city is nothing more than the Christian church. Whereas Luther thought only the, mag- only the magistrates could wield the sword and, the- and to keep the peace, but not to defend the faith, Zwingli had no such compunctions. He was a passionate Swiss, na- Swiss nationalist, so much so that as a chaplain in the Zurich army, he took up armor and the sword in a war against Catholic forces. On October 11, 1531, Zwingli suffered mortal wounds on the battlefield and died. While Zwingli and Luther disagreed on some finer points of theology, they were both clear on the gospel and the belief that in the power of God's word to bring about the reformation in the hearts of the people. The second generation of reformers continued in their stead, but the reforms began to take on different emphasis. Zwingli's followers in Zurich carried on his legacy, particularly the great theologian Heinrich Bollinger, whose writings would have great influence on the English Protestants. We're going to cover them starting at our next session in a couple weeks. Um, uh, they, the English Protestants fled to the, to the continent on, when 
Queen Mary was uh, performing her persecutions of the Protestant church, and they came under the, under the influence of Bollinger during that time, and they were greatly influenced and, and strengthened by him and his writings. Meanwhile, Zwingli's teachings would also come to influence a young Frenchman beginning to have his own qualms with the Roman Catholic Church named John Calvin. Let me just stop right there. Any questions on Frederick Zwingli before we turn our attention to Calvin and uh, the Reformation in uh, Geneva? Yeah. Yep. Were they, I'm assuming that that was because the Bible had been translated into their languages? Yeah, so it's probably not solely based on the Bible being translated, although that was certainly a powerful thing that was going on. I mean, you know, before the invention of the printing press, you had Bibles that were painstakingly copied by hand and were largely in the possession of the church. Um, in your best situations, they were available to the, to the common person, but generally speaking, the common person couldn't read, um, and so it was largely not effective. So the translation of the Bible and the, and the copying of the Bible by printing press was certainly significant, but I think uh, even more than that, what you have is the growing uh, effects of uh, the teachings of the original or the prototypical, if you will, reformers in Hus and Wycliffe, those thoughts and ideas were spreading slowly in the, in the, you know, at the grassroots level, if you will, and producing a sense that, um, you know, that the Catholic Church was not really being faithful. That's from the bottom up. From the top down, you have an increasingly, um, you know, uh, corrupting uh, Catholic Church coming down from the top with, you know, you know, all kinds of superstitions and people feeling like they did, didn't really have access to God and these kinds of things. And so you had all of that stuff coming together at the same time in these different places. And so I think it's, a, it's multiple things together that produce this. Yeah. Good question. Other questions? Yeah. So what you had in, in the Swiss Reformation, and I'm not going to be able to answer this very definitively. I didn't do a lot of broader research. But one of the things you do see in the Swiss Reformation, and, and the, the Reformation is significant in Switzerland. Um, you know, not only, I mean, your, your two main reformers after Luther are in Switzerland for this reason, right? So you have a lot of freedom, a lot of people responding to the, na- to the, to the call of the gospel and you have the, the Swiss nation itself wanting something better than what they had had over the last couple hundred years as they were. Now, you have to, the other thing that I didn't really cover is that it, at the time of the Reformation, you're on the tail end of this, this mercenary culture, right? So they're coming out of this. Um, we're not out yet because it's still going to be another hundred years or so before gunpowder becomes the, the, the means of doing battle, and that's really when the pikemen of, of uh, Switzerland get set aside for other, other means of warfare, and they become not so much the military power anymore, or a military significant, you know, of military significance. But this, at this point in time, you have, you have entering into the Reformation a dissatisfaction with the culture that you have in, in Switzerland. And as a result of that, people are responding to the gospel, right? That's another, and that's another answer to Chris's question as well. Here you have a place where you have an, a nation who is dissatisfied 
and growing more and more dissatisfied with their culture, and they're seeing in the Reformation a response to that and a way to reform their culture as well as, ref as, well as having religious reform in the, in the midst. Yeah. Good. Other questions? Uh, so now we're going to we're going to shift our uh, next slide, please. Uh, we're going to shift our um, attention down from Zurich to this southern kind of south uh, western corner of the country, where we have the city of Geneva. Uh, John Calvin is the one who who ministered there. Uh, he was born in Noyon, France, actually, in 1509. So Calvin is actually French, not Swiss. Uh, but as a youth, he was deeply religious, uh, serious, and moral. Uh, his father had originally intended that he study theology, but uh, after having a falling out with the local bishop, he changed his mind and sent young Calvin to law school instead. Besides his legal studies, Calvin also ste uh, steeped himself in classic works of philosophy and literature. We can see the influence of humanism here with its emphasis on clear thinking, rigorous logic, and especially original source texts. With this background, it naturally followed that Calvin, like his predecessors, Luther and Zwingli, would be drawn to the Bible itself. Uh, at some point later in his studies, Calvin experienced a rather sudden conversion in which, God, in which, quote, God subdued my heart to teachableness. Soon thereafter, he came under close scrutiny for his Protestant sympathies, and King Francis I ordered his arrest for heresy. To escape imprisonment in 1535, he fled to Basel, Switzerland, uh, where at, and it was there at age 26, 26, Calvin published his first draft of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was written as his defense to the man who had ordered his arrest, the King of France. Uh, the full title Calvin chose, and get ready for this, the full title that Calvin chose for his first edition of his classic work tells much of his heart. Take a deep breath. The Institutes of the Christian Religion, containing almost the whole sum of piety and whatever is necessary to know in the doctrine of salvation, a work very well worth reading by all persons zealous for piety and lately published, a preface to the most Christian king of France in which this book is presented to him as a confession of faith. Whew. <laughs> That's the whole title of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... All books of that era had titles like that. That's nothing unusual. Uh, the Institutes became a bestseller as soon as it was published, and Calvin would revise, expand, and republish the Institutes several times throughout his life, bringing it to its completed form in 1559. Uh, next slide. Uh, Basil was German-speaking, so the young Frenchman eventually decided to go to Strasbourg, France. Uh, the, uh, to Oh, whoops. <laughs> that would be going backwards a page. Uh, to evade arrest, Calvin chose kind of a circuitous route that took him to Geneva for one night. Another Protestant preacher, Will, Will, Willem Farrell, had already planted himself in Geneva and begun to agitate against Rome for reform. One scholar, in one scholar's vivid description, Farrell arrived, quote, as a refugee from France, a fiery red-bearded Elijah bellowing to the priests of Baal. Just as Elijah had Elisha for a comrade and a successor, Farrell also recognized his need of assistance, and he implored the visiting Calvin to stay and help him reform, reform Geneva's religious life. Calvin, however, convinced that his gifts and calling were more suited to a solitary life of quiet study and contemplation, resisted. Farrell then threatened Calvin, quote, 
May God condemn your response and the calm you seek for study. If before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your succor and help. Calvin later confessed that these words shocked and broke me. I, detest, I desisted from the journey I had begun. The young Frenchman stayed and Geneva and the church world, worldwide would never be the same. Staying in Geneva meant uh, diving into theological strife during Calvin's first two years. He and Farrell fought with city government over whether the church was allowed to excommunicate unrepentant sinners. The city magistrates, unsympathetic with Calvin's desire for a pure church membership, found such church discipline too, too rigorous, and so they expelled Calvin in 1538. Calvin and his faithful friend Farrell then left for Strasbourg, where Calvin, Calvin spent three very happy years. He was very productive there. He got married, he married a widow, and became father of her two children. In 1541, however, the Genevan authorities realized their mistake and Calvin back to Geneva. He didn't want to leave Strasbourg, but a sense of duty and mission eventually compelled him, and he returned where he would stay for the rest of his life. Next slide. His first Sunday back in Geneva, after a three-year exile, Calvin ascended the pulpit in his old church, the Cathedral of St. Pierre. His listeners fully expected to hear a vindictive, self-righteous sermon gloating about his return, but were surprised instead to hear Calvin open his Bible and simply resume the expository preaching through the very text which he had left three years before. In this way, Calvin bore powerful witness to his own submission to the Word of God, resisting the temptation to distort it for his own petty purposes. Uh, he maintained a rigorous preaching schedule during the next 23 years in Geneva. He would preach two sermons from the New Testament every Sunday, one sermon from the Old Testament every day during the week on alternate weeks, and on the weeks that he wasn't preaching, he would, he would give three classes a day to, the, to theological students. In all, he, would, he produced about 170 sermons a year. While not preaching or studying, Calvin kept a dizzying pace of pastoring, counseling, teaching, and corresponding with thousands of people, ranging from kings and emperors to poor imprisoned Protestants. He did all of this in the midst of acute physical suffering. He had a frail constitution, and towards the end of his life, he detailed a catalog of his various ailments. Arthritis, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, fever, nephritis, severe indigestion, colic, and ulcers. And I've seen lists of, I've seen other people's lists that are even bigger than that. He rarely let these afflictions inhibit his ministry. He even preached his last sermon by being carried to the pulpit on his bed. Next slide. Uh, under Geneva's pastorate, under Calvin's pastorate in Geneva, every citizen was supposed to be under the moral discipline of the church. While Calvin only uh, held the office of minister and sought to preserve both the independence and supremacy of the church, the church and state worked very closely together to create a, quote, Christian city. Calvin became Geneva's dominant figure, influencing even uh, education and commercial policies. Though Calvin and his fellow church leaders found themselves frequently at odds with the, church, the city council, he succeeded in part in forging a unified Christian community whose members were in good standing with both the church and civil authorities. Meanwhile, Geneva became a haven for oppressed Protestants, and a training ground and center for reformation in Europe. Calvin did not confine his vision to Geneva. He was concerned uh, broadly about the church and sent out missionaries to spread the gospel throughout Europe and as, far as way, and as far away as Brazil. 
Critics are often quick to disparage Calvin for, an unfor for one unfortunate episode that took place during his tenure in Geneva. Uh, there was a physician and theological mischief maker named Michael Servetus, uh, who had been stirring uh, indignation throughout all of Europe for his denial of the Trinity. Um, he was, and he was being pursued by both Catholic and Protestant uh, authorities. Uh, when he arrived in Geneva, he was arrested, tried, convicted, and burned at the stake. While today we rightly understand religious liberty and freedom of conscience to permit citizens to hold heretical beliefs, in the 16th century such notions were profoundly threatening were universally uh, denied. Uh, after all, how could one be a good citizen while denying the truth? While it was the city council and not Calvin who ordered Servetus' execution, uh, and Calvin did uh, argue for a less severe form of death, he ordered for death by beheading and not by burning at the stake, um, <laughs> uh, he viewed it as more, as more merciful, um, Calvin did agree to the execution, right? Uh, as did just almost every other Catholic and Protestant in Europe. Uh, so as one scholar reminds us, these heresies of uh, Servetus would, be, would have been expiated at the stake in Catholic France had he not escaped and paid the same penalty in Protestant Geneva. In fact, the Catholic Church actually did burn Servetus, but he did, they did it by effigy. So they, they made a statue of him and burned that because, because Servetus had escaped their grasp and fleed to, fleed to Geneva instead. So while we should not defend Calvin in this regard, neither should we judge him over harshly by a historical standard that was not his own. Next slide. So what, it, what is it that Calvin taught? What did he write about? What did he, what did he believe? Uh, to put him in context, Calvin should be appreciated as a second-generation reformer. First generation led by Luther and Zwingli. Uh, it was they who had recovered the gospel and fought the battles and broken decisively with Rome, laying the foundation for successors such as Calvin to refine, systematize, and further implement the reforms into a positive vision of the church and the Christian life. So you have in Calvin, he's building on a foundation. So he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to fight the battles that Luther had to fight. <clears throat> um, so Calvin's Institutes is widely recognized as the single most influential book of the Protestant Reformation and one of the greatest theological works of all time. Uh, he wrote, uh, what he wrote of in the institutions, he tried to live out in Geneva. Calvin also wrote renowned commentaries on almost every book of the Bible, commentaries that are still in print to this day and used by many scholars and pastors. We have a, copy, a, a, a set of Calvin's commentaries in our library. Uh, Calvin divided the Institutes into four parts, or books, meant to follow the outline of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, first, you have the knowledge of God the Creator. The second book is the knowledge of God the Redeemer. The third book is the way in which we receive the grace of Christ, its benefits and effects. And then the fourth book is the external means by which God invites us into the society of Christ. Though Calvinism is often caricatured as focused only on human sin and God's sovereignty and salvation, any fair reading Calvin's seminal work will reveal the Christian profoundly concerned with declaring the whole counsel of God for the entire Christian life. Uh, indeed, the Institutes begins with the question of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves and how the two are connected and even inseparable. After all, Cal observes Calvin, on the one hand, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning himself, his thoughts to the contemplation of God. 
And on the other hand, it is clear that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked on God's face. And then descends from, oh, sorry, and then defends from, from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. Notice Calvin's paramount concern here. It is not abstract theorizing about an impersonal deity. It is rather an earnest grappling with the relationship between God and man. If Luther's foundational question was, what must I do to be saved? Calvin's basic questions were two and, had even, and were even more foundational. Calvin's question was, who am I and who is God? Here Calvin showed an acute perception of human nature. He believed that all human beings had in them a seed of religion, a need to worship something or someone. And this leads either to idolatry and love of the worship of self or else to piety and the love of worship of God. Calvin's answer to the second question about the nature of God is often misunderstood. Although Calvin is widely and rightly known for his emphasis on the sovereignty of God, he does not, uh, he does not give the full, that does not give the full, full picture. For Calvin, God's sovereignty puts God's majesty and glory into view. It, the sovereignty points to those things and is not something in and of itself. Calvin's words, quote, lacks nothing, still the principal aim he had in creating man was that his name might be glorified in them. And were this not so, what would become of the many evidences of Scripture which tell us that the sovereign aim for our salvation is the glory of God? Calvin saw God's glory manifest most vividly in Christ's work in securing our salvation. As our substitute who suffered the penalty of death that we deserve for our own sins, Christ served as the only sufficient mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And those who by faith uh, trusted in Christ for their salvation could be sure that God would hold them secure. This is why Calvin came to focus on God's election in salvation and God's sovereignty in salvation. Not as a smug self-satisfaction for arrogant or complacent Christians, but rather out of pastoral concern, to reassure anxious Christians of God's absolute reliability in saving them. And just who are the elect? Although this cannot be known with certainty or finality here by mere humans here on earth, Calvin believed that three measures could, could uh, provide helpful guidance for discerning who is likely saved. Uh, the way he put them. Participation in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, an upright moral life, and a public profession of faith. Calvin's emphasis on the glory and sovereignty of God and salvation led naturally to a great love for the church as Christ's body here on earth. Going beyond Luther's preoccupation with justification, Calvin also focused on sanctification, or the believer's responsibility to live a new and holy life out of gratitude for God's grace. Here the church for Calvin was key, both as a help in sanctification and as a display to the world of God's glory in making a holy people, or justification. He distinguished between the invisible church, which included all people for all time who had been saved by Jesus Christ, and the visible church, which was the particular local manifestation of Christ's body. He identified two distinguishing marks of a true visible church, the right preaching of the word and the right uh, administration of the sacraments and sacrament produced faithful church. Uh, and where these are followed faithfully, in his view, the gospel would flourish. 
By the time of Calvin's death in 1564, it had become clear that the Reformation was no mere passing fancy or local disturbance. It was a monumental era on several fronts as social upheaval, a political revolution, a scholarly renaissance, and most of all, a recovery of the gospel. Nor was it confined to Luther's Wittenberg, Zwingli's Zurich, or Calvin's Geneva. The ideals and doctrines of the Reformation spread rapidly throughout Europe, sometimes taking root in fertile fields, other times encountering severe resistance and violent persecution. Within decades, Reformed or Lutheran churches became dominant in Switzerland and Germany, the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, parts of France, England, and so that's that's where we're gonna that's where we're gonna stop today. Uh, we'll be continuing this in two weeks. We have two weeks off, so there's no no core seminar next week and the week after uh, for as we break for Easter. But uh, um, uh, uh, Skyler will be taking us through the English Reformation. So we'll move our focus from Switzerland up into England and see what was happening up there during the same period of time. Questions that I can answer for you guys. Civil, um, uh, uh, the kingdom uh, sort of view as a, as a more tangible physical tie to, to nations? Yes, very much so. Uh, which is why, I mean, when you, what you see in Calvin and Calvin's Geneva is a very significant and close relationship with, between the civil authority and the church authority. And that's because Calvin had, it, had that same impetus, right, right? We need, the church needs to be able to be uh, uh, connected to and significant in civil life. Uh, without that, is the gospel really having an effect is what they would, they would see. Now, we don't see that things quite that closely connected to each other, right? And we, and we have seen problems that, that grow out of too close of a connection between uh, the civil authority and church authority over time. I mean, certainly you saw it in the Catholic Church of their time, um, but they didn't reject that idea that the, that the church should be connected with the civil authority. Uh, they wanted to reform that idea and make it better. Uh, and Calvin was certainly that way. And that's why, that's why Calvin is held responsible, for example, for the decision about Servetus in many cases. You know, even though he really wasn't the decision, he was certainly significantly involved in the trial, significantly involved in recommending what should happen, and f in full support of, the, of his execution as a, res as a heretic, right? So, uh, but uh, in all of that, you see Calvin working very closely with and being a significant player at the civil level. Hold a like a lesser view of other regions in the world that were undergoing the Reformation that didn't have that tie to oh, uh, to sort of you know like did he uh, did he consider the Reformation less fruitful in areas where there wasn't that marriage between civil and I have no religion? Idea. I actually have no idea. Um, whether that was significant in his thinking in particular. I, don't, I actually don't know how often that was the case that it wasn't. It may not have been to the degree that Calvin was there, but I mean, in one of the things we're going to see in England is that we're, the Reformation in England is going to birth the Anglican Church, which is the state church of England, right? So you see a very close cooperation there between church and state, right? So, and I think that other areas of Europe were much the same way. Remember, this is... Part of the, the church and state being together 
is part of the, the water in which they swam, right? There, it, it, was, it was part of the culture. And so as you were reforming that, it wasn't until later that you started to see those separate, you know, having wider separation between them. But I don't know about Calvin's opinion about others who might have worked against that idea and been more, uh, you know, you, although I will say this, and I don't know what Calvin's opinion is specifically, as, a, as that part of that second and third generation of reformers, you do have groups such as the Anabaptists cropping up, which were very much a separate ourselves from the society, from the civil authority, and go on their own. But they were generally considered to be variant on a number of fronts. So, um, you know, and tr- troubling on a number of fronts. Though I don't, I don't know that, you, that he would have concluded anything bad because of their disassociation with civil authority per se. They had lots of other problems. So, uh, so I'm not sure about what Calvin's opinion would have been in that case. His, to answer that from a different direction, he was certainly concerned about the, the spread of the gospel more broadly. I mean, he was, I mean Geneva was, a, was pumping out uh, um, missionaries like crazy. I mean, they were sending people all over the place, like I said, even as far away as Brazil. So, you know, any of you who hear, you know, Calvinism doesn't, you know, you can't do evangelism under, Calvin, under Calvin's teaching. I mean, read, if you read the history of, of Calvin's Geneva, they were sending out missionaries all over the place even under this teaching that God is sovereign in all things, including salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Good time for other questions, if there are any. All right, well, uh, if, you have, if you think of any, you can approach me afterwards. Let me pray for us as we conclude. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your, again, as we see your hand preserving your church through history, through... Uh, what in some ways should have been a short-lived blip on the radar of people who dissented from the overall church opinion, uh, and yet you lit a fire in the Reformation um, uh, that could not be put out. One of the the, um, books that I recommend on the back is The Unquenchable Flame, and that's the way we, we see you working in history here is this sparking a flame that just cannot be put out no matter how hard people try. And that's really the, the history and the, um, and the legacy of the gospel all through history, is that no matter how hard a leader or a nation tries to squash and put out the gospel, it cannot be done. And we are so grateful for your work on our behalf through Jesus Christ fundamentally and then through your church in history. So we praise you for what we're learning. We thank you for it. We thank you as well for the opportunity that we have to worship you in our church service now coming up. We ask that you would bless that worship to our hearts as we seek to worship you in faithfulness uh, and truth. So we thank you for all that you have done in Christ and praise you in his name. Amen. Thanks, everyone.